You're listening to the Audio Brew Podcast, the podcast for people who make music. I'm Naomi with the Audio Brew here with Tim. Today we're going to be talking about transitioning from live to studio and recording contracts and getting paid. Our guest is mix engineer, producer, and owner of Gage Street Production in Boise, Idaho. He has worked with a number of artists, including Aaron Golay and Kosi, MH Eternal, and Vineyard Music. I'd like to welcome Jake Nielsen to the show. Welcome to the Audio Brew, Jake. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, Jake, you've done some good work. I've got to say, you've come a long ways because you're not that old. How old are you? I'm 26. We met when I was 21, Tim. Tell us about your love for music and audio production. So I always was a musician. Uh, Growing up, I played like saxophone in band and did like a whole band thing through high school uh, and then played guitar and then realized through like going to school what really like what really matters, like the music that you hear, like it's not that person making the music. So I wanted to be the person making the music and like kind of taking the steps to being that towards being a session player uh, and then a producer. Uh, and so like those steps look differently. And so probably when we met him, I was probably doing my first record, that One Desire EP. That was my first step into like producing music that I also co-wrote and being a part of something bigger than me and like two friends. Fantastic. And now you've got your own studio there in Boise, Gage Street Studios. We work uh, with a lot of just artists that want to have a different studio experience. I think with big studios, it's really easy to like get in and get out and then have a product you're not really happy with. And so really taking the time and putting in just more thought into the process and like just walking out with something that I'm happy with and the artist is happy with. That's kind of really what we focus on. But the whole thing here at Gate Street is, you know, making sounds with friends, because if you don't have interesting sounds, you don't have interesting songs. That's so true. And I think back to some of my early studio experiences, and I've got to say they they weren't necessarily pleasant. For sure. I think that just having realistic expectations for your artist and the amount of time that you're going to put into it is so important. My wife really tries to enforce upon me that uh, I need to have better management when dealing with artists uh, of what my expectations look like for them, not just what they expect from me. So it's not just a one-way street. I'm putting a lot and they're putting in a lot and we both have to be happy. Yeah, that is so true. That is so true. So to play on that a little bit, um, talk to us a little bit about how you go about your recording contracts and, and getting paid. Guys, first of all, I'm far behind the times. I did not get a contract for doing this until two years ago. I had done projects and stuff like that. And the reason I had got a contract was because I did I did like a, a string of singles for an artist that they didn't pay me for like six months. And I was like texting them all the time. And I was like, hey, could I uh, can I get some money? And they're like, yeah, man, like we're like the singles doing great. Like we'll get you some money soon. And I was like, well, I know the singles not doing great, dude. Like I know. <laughs> and I was like, just just hit me when you can. And I ended up having to like confront the other band members so you guys haven't paid me like, are you for real? And then ended up getting stuff sorted by just not talking to the front person. So that was really funny. I have a friend in this uh, in Boise that also runs a studio. It's called House Below. We work a lot together. Gate Street and House Below work a lot together. Like I'll do vocal stuff for him, like vocal tuning. And, you know, I'll track at his place and he'll send me stuff to work on. Anyways, he sent me his contract because I was like telling him I was super annoyed. Basically, I took the contract that he had showed me laying out, this is my expectations. This is the expectations that you can have. And this is how much you're charge. This is how much I'll charge. And this is 
a realistic end date and then I own this until you pay for it, which I think is a really hard thing for artists to understand because they're like, oh, it's my song. And I was like, well, but I just put in 100 hours and to make your song sound fierce. Yeah, but you're putting all of that that energy into it. Yeah. So, you know, basically saying like, I own your song until you pay for it. You know, then that kind of was me having to learn how to just give artists MP3s instead of waves because guys have been burned before. When I think about that, I want to say that we've been fairly good Mm -hmm. historically in the studios that we've operated in the past. We tend to work with a lot of young people, some middle-aged people. It seemed to be that the younger people were more excited about being in the studio and especially if they were high school or just out of high school, they would be more invested in actually bringing you cash every time they came into the studio. Yeah, I totally agree. I've seen younger kids. I think that they see a better exchange of the value that you put into it. Not necessarily that I think like older people don't see it, but I think that they think that they can do it just as well as I could, Mm. which may or may not be true. You know, what, what do I know? Or the, you know, it's the old guy that's like, yeah, man, I was on Pro Tools 3 back in the day. He's like, yeah. He's like, just let, just set me up. I can do it for here. And I'm like, how about no? No. Yeah. The other thing was, uh, you know, we, we don't hand out masters, kind of like how you mentioned, send people yeah. an MP3. We don't send out, you know, the master recordings to people. I had an artist that was trying to get signed. And I had sent them waves because I was young and dumb. They like sent it to this label. I was like losing my mind. Uh, They were like, hey, we just sent it to these guys. And I was like, yo, this is not a finished mix. This is nowhere near what it should sound like. And you're sending it to a label because you think it's happy. Like you're happy with it. Like I was like, if you guys get signed, just I don't want my name on this at all. I don't want anybody to know that I did this crappy product. Yeah, that's definitely something you don't want to put your name on. The finished product is all you want your name on. 100%. 100%. So what are your, say, top three top three tips for getting paid? Communication before you even start tracking. This is how much I cost. This is what I'm going to give you. This is what you're going to give me. So com- communication and then expectations and then getting a signed contract because the signed contract is legally binding. So, you know, in the music industry, I think that a lot of us are like super chill and we're like, oh, no, man, it's cool. Like hit me when you can. And then you realize you start doing this for money and you're like, oh, shit, I can't do this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're like, I, I need to pay rent for my space or whatever. Well, and you, you've got to pay for all of that gear that you're purchasing for the studio. I mean, that's all. kind of part of the reason why they come to the studio to begin with. Yeah, for real. So having in the contract, it's saying like, if you don't pay by this date. Like you're going to have to face legal consequences because I need to get paid. And you got your master's. So, yeah, because like that way I have it out in my contract. I do half up front and then the other half at the end. Once my day is finished, they get their master's and they have like 10 days to pay me my rest of my bid. Because I understand like deadlines, especially while you're making the record can get pushed back and their release date can, you know, interfere with mastering and stuff. So as soon as my end's finished, I can I give it to them. They can get their plan. And then in 10 days, 10 business days, I I expect to get paid. And that's all part of the communication and expectations that you talked about. But we also live in a COVID time. And so there's a lot more leeway. I just did a record and COVID hit in the middle of the record. He is a full-time musician. He doesn't have a normal job. And so I was like, listen, you have extra time to pay this because this is not fair for anybody. Because I just, I hate it. I hate being so 
broke poor when all you do is like play music and you're like, man, this is great. It gives people, it gives me energy, but like, man, I really could like, you know, eat or pay my rent or whatever. <laughs> so trying to figure that kind of stuff out in a, you know, a COVID situation is really interesting. The artists I'm working with right now, we kind of have had to figure that out together with me, like my studio and then him as an artist being like what my expectations are, what his were, and kind of how we're going to move forward getting paid. Because money is so uncomfortable to talk about, guys. Oh, it is. Really uncomfortable. And everybody's just like, yo, man, just do it for the art. And you're like, but I do it for money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do my own for art. I do yours for money. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. It, it can't always be about the art or n- none of the artists would eat ever. <laughs> so... When we were on the phone the other day, you talked about a um, the transition from live to studio. Um, do you want to shed some light on that for us? Would this be a time to talk about MDing? You can. Sweet. We would love okay. to hear about your MDing. For everyone out there that maybe isn't familiar with the term, give us a quick brief overview of MDing and what it is. Cool. MDing is musical director, and every touring band has one whether they have a talk back or not, whether they're playing to tracks or not. Also, every touring band pretty much plays the tracks except for the Foo Fighters. Musical director just kind of helps everybody be on the same page, whether there are ups and downs between your sets. You tour a lot and you play, you know, the same 15 songs every night. Like an MD can just kind of help curve that kind of stuff out. So the background that I came out of was MDing for big church bands making sure that everybody is on the same page through transitions and quiet times and being a little bit, I guess, free is the right word to use to kind of go where you want to. Like if you want to build there, if you want to bring it down there, if you want to do a break. MD's job is basically to not only communicate where we're going, because on a typical set, the band should know where they're going, but to also know everybody else's part. Knowing the drummer, you know, is usually like this is where they're at in the kick. They're right on there or like the snare. Uh, knowing the keys part, knowing the bass part, and then knowing where the vocalist is going to be at. So that is all the MD's jobs, because if something feels wrong, then you need to check in. Hey, you missed this. Are you good? And as the tighter band you get, like those kind of things need to not happen as much. But when you are like an MD in a band of like rotating, whether they're like rotating hired guns or whatever, you need to you know check in and make sure that your band is playing as tight as they can. So as an MD, you're basically a live producer. So yeah, being an MD is basically being a producer just doing it live. You're telling people what to do in just split-second decisions. And so it was a really natural move because I'd already been working in the studio as like a session player, um, doing like a lot of keys and guitar stuff. And it was just a really natural transition to move into that of just telling other people what to do. I just have this innate sense to tell people what to do. And it's so wrong. That's kind of what a producer's job is, though. Moving into the studio was nice because I could take as long as I wanted to to write the right parts or to help musicians get to the right parts. That's awesome. Yeah, there's a difference between knowing what needs to happen in a production sense and being able to communicate that in a manner that is effective. 100%. It's not just whether or not they understand you 
But it, there's also that point of, well, I'm offended now because somebody just said I need to do something. You know, there's always musicians that are like that as well. And so knowing how to approach different personality types and deal with people in specific ways, it's, it's almost like it's a form of manipulation, but really all you're trying to do is bring out the best out of them. 100%. And that happens in the studio as well as live. Right. I mean, if you don't cultivate a, a safe place, like live or in the studio, then people can't give their best. Playing live, I, I played with some of my best friends when I was playing live a lot. Guys who I would, I lived with two of them. And then like regularly, we would just like hang out and get beers, whatever. Like we're friends outside of this, this group. And so that's really where you become really tight with bands. That's how you get tight with anybody. You spend time with them. You begin to get better rapports, better hangs. And then communication, if you step on someone's toes, it becomes a lot less offensive. Yes. Um, I would 100% say that when I was like starting to MD, I didn't know what I was doing. Nobody knew what they were doing. And I 100% hurt a lot of people's feelings. 100%. Yeah, I think at that point, when you're so young, people have maybe been playing for for longer than you've been alive in some instances. And somebody somebody comes in and is like, hey, you need to, you know, if you're a keyboardist, you need to play less of these low notes. Stop it. That's where the bass player plays, right? Tim, are you saying that these are the words that I told you? No. (laughs) It sounds like it, doesn't it? It, Did you tell me that? You know, I'm really glad that we're going to bring this up because I don't remember anything I told you. And I would feel bad if we talked about it because I'm sure I was not nice. Yeah, we we had played (laughs) together a little bit on the stage, uh, but I don't remember you giving me any real feedback. Maybe I blocked those memories. Yeah, you know, just that whole Nord setup just really made me angry. (laughs) Well, the, the, the whole Nord setup, I mean, in that scenario, most of what was being done was mostly just tinkering around. On, oh, the, yeah. on the uppers, you know, staying away from the danger zone. I get staying it. out of the danger zone, oh, you yeah. know, just trying to make things sound pretty. And then you had that sweet Akai at the time, too. Do you still have that? No, no, I gave that up. I went with the native instruments S61. I kind of missed the Akai. The Akai was good, but it wasn't as good as, as the uh, S61. I only like the Akai because it was preset into Ableton. Mm. I didn't have to do anything, I just had to plug it in, it did everything for me. I know that you have a few mantras that you have been working on. Yeah. Just some core values. 100% have some core values in the studio. First one, your first idea is your best idea. If you can pull it off. Uh, A lot of time in our studio sessions, we just overthink and we overanalyze. It happens to musicians, it happens to mix engineers and producers. They fall into that or artist conundrum of just tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it because it'll never be perfect to just kind of negate that possibility. I just kind of go with my first idea, like my gut reaction. And I think that's probably from doing all this live stuff and that live MDing was, you know, my first thing is like the best deal. If I, if I can pull it off, then we're going to do that. In my second mantra, if you can't do it three times, then you need to move on which kind of is counterintuitive to my first one. But uh, yeah, it is. And there's no explanation for it. I've had those guitarists in, in sessions. Yeah, oh, you know, exactly. It's like some guy trying to play some shredder solo and you're like, dude, it's just not going to happen. Not going to like, it's fine. You're going to be just okay. One more. And you're like, oh, you can just comp it together, right? And I was like, sure, I'll just comp it together. And it's really just me going back and playing their guitar solo. Um, I That's never happened before. <laughs> Um, there's no proof yeah there is no proof okay 
but yeah, like I think that we spend a lot of time just hammering away the parts that we can't play. And that's not necessarily to any fault of our own. It's not because you're a bad musician or you're just not, or you don't have the chops for it. Maybe it's just like, it doesn't, you're not hitting it because it's just not right for the song. We, as a culture of producers need to get back to simple hooks. Hmm. I think that there is far too much like indie music and alternative music that is just not hooky because they don't want it to be like top 40, but you can have hooks and not be super pop. They've gone so far away from this. I don't want to be bubblegum pop, write good hooks that people want to listen to because the whole point of music is for other people to listen to your music. If people aren't singing along with the things that you're writing or working on, you should definitely rethink it because it might not be connecting with the people that you think it is. And music is all about connection. It is. It, but it's also about your personal connection to your music, too. For sure. But also, I am not listening to the music that I write. Other people are listening to the music that I write. H- haven't you ever had that moment where a song comes on and you're like, hey, this is kind of cool. I like this. And then you realize it's your song. 100% that happened this weekend. Do you remember Andrew Douglas? Oh, Yes. Yeah, another friend that we played a lot of music with. He had a playlist going on, and it had a, a song on a new record that I had done. And I was like, "Dude, this slaps!" And he goes, "Do you not? This is the song that you did." And I was like, "Oh yeah, man, I forgot about that." <laughs> Those are the best moments. That's that's when you know you did something right when you hear it and it's too good to be yours. Yeah, you're like, "This yeah. is really catchy. This is a good song. Who is this?" Yeah. Oh, it's me. So this is the part of the episode where we ask you about an epic. Gear fell. I have this 70s RE20, which is a microphone. I don't know if you guys know much about vintage microphones, but they're kind of the worst. I had a vocal session that was not in my studio. It was like a remote session. I had taken my interface, my computer over there. Feeling hot on these vocals, felt good. I had my headphones, they had their headphones. I was like, great, this sounds awesome. And I get back to my studio, plugging my laptop into my system immediately was like, wow, this sounds awful. I don't know what's going on here. And I'm like trying to tweak it all and trying to figure out. And I finally was like so upset. I opened up the microphone. All the foam had disintegrated and the capsule had come off and was rattling against the body. And so like whenever this vocalist would have a sympathetic sound, it would vibrate the microphone against the diaphragm. And it was just so horrendous. So horrendous, guys. And that's, I was... That's painful. I was... I, I sat for probably three days with RX trying to fix it and got it to a place where I was like, this is going to be good enough. <laughs> so um, I'm guessing you didn't catch it during the time of recording. We did not catch it while recording. I thought that the vocal sounded awesome and I was super pumped on it and it turned out like garbage. Oh my gosh. That is very painful. Did the singer ever know about it? No, no idea. But now they do. Well, they do if they've listened to their map. Well, yeah, I doubt this. <laughs> I, I doubt that artist listens to this. I'm, I'm going to send it to him now. You can tag him in and be like, yo, I talked about you in this. I totally screwed up your vocals on this song. <laughs> but it's fine. But I salvaged it. Yeah, it, was, it worked out. Because I'm an awesome engineer. Something like that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about some gear. Oh, man. Yes. What kind of gear do you want to talk about? Let's talk about tape machines. I got a tape machine, guys, and it is so cool. 
I got like this older Sony tape machine with three heads um, and put in some new Telefunken tubes into it. Well, new to me, Telefunken tubes in it. Cleaned all the heads. And basically, I use it uh, for stems. So eight tracks of drums, throw it in the tape machine. And usually uh, with the drums, I'll do a parallel. So I'll just like compress it and make it sound like like an eruption and then add like a lot of slap back to it um, to make it sound huge. Um, and then guitars, we're adding just warmth. We want just like a nice, like a nice mid bump in it because that's what the tape does. And so I do that on guitars. How do you like the tape compared to the emulations? Listen, I think that the emulations are probably better. I just like it because I think it adds some weird weight that I just couldn't, I don't know what to, I don't know how to explain it. It adds this weird weight. It makes things feel like heavier, which is probably like an EQ thing that's way over my head. But I think that it sounds cooler. There's definitely something to be said about a unique piece, a unique instrument, a unique vocalist, a unique guitar, a unique amp. Something yes. that something that you can bring to a session that can't be replicated anywhere else. Totally. Do you have any other studio gear that's like your favorite or even live gear? Yeah, I have this vintage telly that has been passed down from me from my grandfather to my dad to me. And it's a 73 telly. Um, so we have like early CBS telly. My grandfather found it on the side of the road in New England and it has the craziest pickup configuration on it. In the neck, it has a guild humbucker. In the middle section, it has a 59 strap pickup in it. And then in the bridge, it has an original single coil. And it has a switch to bring the humbucker in and out of phase. So you can get really weird towns with the humbucker. And then it's got just a normal pickup selection where you can do. So uh, I've had that guitar for years and I play it all the time. If somebody wanted to look you up and maybe look up your studio, Gage Street Studio. Yeah. And see some examples or give some listens to some of the work that you've done. Yeah. Where would they do that? They would go to my Instagram page. It's Gage Street Studios. Awesome. And you're available to hire, obviously, for remote mixes and everything else? Yeah, remote mixing, session work, producing artists. Right now, uh, I'm doing, like, remote producing, and that's been really exciting for me. Awesome. So do you have a a track that you want us to play that you've produced? Oh, Let's Play Anywhere by Aaron Golay. Thank you for coming on the show with us. Of course. I'm sure we'll have you back again. I love this. We've got so much more to talk about. Oh, yeah. No, we'll definitely have to have you come back. And with that, we're going to leave you with Aaron Golay and the song Anywhere from the album Love, Lust, Heartache. I get bent out of shape when you leave me alone I get burned up inside when you tell me I'm wrong But ain't no mystery It's a love, hey, sort of thing 
taking the time to listen to this episode. Please show your support by subscribing to this podcast. Visit us at theaudiobrew.com and sign up for the handcrafted email. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You have been listening to the Audio Brew Podcast from Rockaway Beach, Oregon.